So imagine leaving school at 16, thinking that you were going to have kind of a mainstream traditional path in life, finding yourself traveling around the world on um, giant merchant ships, and then being delivered back into reality to rediscover who you are, and then building a, a life, a career, a living, a livelihood, taking youths and some of the smartest, most accomplished teams out into the middle of nowhere out into the desert, out into the roughest ocean patches in the world, into the wilds and the wilderness, and leveraging the power, the, the raw energy, the, the, the just complete immersive nature of these environments to transform people's relationships with themselves, with other people, and with the planet and their lives and their livings. Well, that is exactly what my guest today does. Scotty Johnson is somebody who's been a friend of mine for a while. In this conversation, I also learned for the first time on tape that my friend, Scotty, who I've known for years, his name is naturally Scotty. <laughs> you will hear that story and how that sort of like unfolded along with his really beautiful, compelling personal journey and how he has sort of meandered his way into this stunning living and life. Really excited to share this journey with you and this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. The show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. So from the UK? currently live in the northwest of England in a, a beautiful part of the world called the Lake District. So surrounded by the natural environment, hills and mountains and lakes and lots of lots of woodland. So that, that's where I currently live. Uh, but I was born in Scotland, just outside Edinburgh. 
went to went to school there till I was about eight years old and then moved down to England and I had a very strong Scottish accent. The school I went to, I don't think they'd met any Scottish people. So my real name's actually Andrew. They called me Scotty because I had a Scottish accent and it just stuck. So I'm I'm Scotty. Wait a minute. So all these years I've been calling you Scotty. It's not actually your real that's name. That's not my name. <laughs> but it's that's an, what everybody calls you. That's right. Yeah. It's not on my passport. It says Andrew on my passport. That's too funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it takes this for me to learn something like that. Who I actually am. Right, right, yeah. right. right. Now right. I'm going to learn a lot more shadowy stuff. That's right. Sure. Yeah. That's too funny. So you end up in sort of like a new place when you're, what, what led to the move actually? Through my dad's work. Yeah, through my, my dad's work and, and where, where my parents were living in Scotland, it was in a, I think in the US you would call it project-based housing. And it's a, it was a pretty rough part of, the, of Scotland and being English wasn't, wasn't great, I don't think, for my, particularly for my mum. So, um, so she was pretty happy to leave, leave Scotland and uh, move, move down to England. My, dad, my dad's work, he got an opportunity to move down to, to a place called Lancashire in the northwest of England. Yeah, that's where they moved and I was, I was eight years old. Mm. What kind of kid were you? I was, well, what, what's interesting that what kind of kid was, was I is I asked my, if my, you, if you like my, our listeners, if you could see like the smile that just <laughs> swept across <laughs> Scotty's face as he kind of looked up and inside into history. Cause I asked my parents recently about this, like what kind of kid was I, like, how would you describe me? And again, you know, it's interesting how this conversation is relevant to, to my work and you know, what, what shaped this and, um, my mum describes me as, as being the, the leader of the gang, is how she always says it, is all I ever wanted to do as a kid was go outside and hang out with, with the other kids and create things and play and have adventures. And, and that's, that, that's what I did. My mum my was sharing a, a story with me of my, my first and second day at school as a five-year-old. And, uh, you know, got the uniform on and got ready to go out and, you know, the little shorts and the grey socks and all that stuff yeah in scotland in shorts and it's probably snowing likely pretty much didn't want to go did not want to go to school age five and so my mum recalls the story of me basically getting dragged along the pavement for about a mile and a half to get to get to the school <laughs> kicking and screaming and deposited me into the school picked me up at the end of the day and she said i definitely wasn't smiling at the end of the day the amusing part of the story is the next day she said, okay, we're going to school. And apparently my reply was, but we did that yesterday, <laughs> <laughs> which pretty much sums up my life, which is doing new things and, you know, which has its challenges in many respects of life. And so apparently the second day involved a lot more kicking and screaming, which gradually progressed and until I managed to suppress the kicking and screaming externally. And I think it was just an internal process till I could leave when I was 15, but I <laughs> was... That was, uh, I think that's what I was like as a kid, was nonconformist from a very early age, I think. Yeah. But, but what's interesting is it wasn't that you didn't love, like you were an explorer. You loved to be out and learning and being adventuring. It wasn't that you weren't interested in learning. It was the structure yeah. that seemed like it just really grated against you. Yeah. It was being confined, being, being confined within a system and not feeling free. I think it's, I think it's a nature thing about who I am that I've just never responded well to control and being confined. And, uh, and the, the, you know, the classic education system is geared towards academia and exams and conforming. And, you know, I was one of the kids that didn't conform. So I had a pretty, I had a pretty rough time going all the way through school till I could leave. Mm. 
Were were you aware? Like, when were you aware of the fact that this was really not the way that you needed to learn? It was probably when I was about twelve, I think. About twelve, and we went on a a school trip. You know, you you get in the coach and you head off somewhere. And I think I think it was to a, a coal mining museum, which was about two hours away from where I was living in England, and and we we get on the bus and we go to the museum and because you get back to school and the next day you have to write a little assignment about your experience and I write my assignment and I get an A star and I get a merit you know the the piece of paper with the gold star on and and I just remember there's a moment and there's a teacher looked at me and said why can't you be like this the rest of the time and and I think there was in that moment where I think I realized that I was at my best when I was out exploring, discovering, being curious, meeting new people, seeing things, seeing the external world. And and I remember after that, just, you know, I was the kid who would always dive for the seat next to the window in the classroom and would spend most of the time looking out the window, not listening to what was going on in the room. And um, so, yeah, so I, it, it, you know, and the education system didn't allow for, that different kind of learning really. So I spent probably most of my high school being fairly unhappy in school and in detention a lot and getting into trouble and rebelling, rebelling against the the confinements of the system. Mm. Yeah. I mean, what's so interesting too, is that it feels like it hasn't actually changed all that much since then. You know, there are certainly, there are examples of great schools and progressive education and homeschooling or unschooling is certainly, they're both really interesting movements that are kind of, slowly growing, but as much as they're gaining a bit more mainstream acceptance, they're still considered pretty fringe and traditional school is still like generation or two later, it's still so similar structurally and so built around order and conformity. Yeah. I was chatting to a friend of mine who he he's running a business, which is specializing in outdoor learning in schools and helping schools to create outdoor classrooms to accommodate children who have a different learning style and and preferences and and he was saying he said you've got to remember that the education system certainly in the UK is geared towards fitting a Victorian order of educating people to be able to work in a production line from nine to five and to give them the the knowledge and skills to be able to do it and there's very little change fundamentally about the background to education in order to create that level of ability to conform to a very fairly old system, which is crazy when you think about the world we live in. The digital age in terms of technology and, and remote working and entrepreneurship and and, yeah, and and especially now how many more young people are interested in purpose and values that the people I know who work in education say that they're still, as teachers, they're still confined to conform to the old system. And it's really difficult to change to change that. And certainly I was in that place where... I, I very quickly realized that it just wasn't working for me. Yeah. So that that actually led you out. I mean, it's different in the UK than it is here, which I've actually learned through you over the years, which is that you opted out of school, I guess, at 15, which you can do. Whereas in the US, I guess the expectation is like you can opt out after your, your 12th grade or your senior year, where most kids are you know, late 17, 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So in the, in the UK at the time, which has actually changed now, but at the time you could leave at the end of your you know, your high school years. And we, we, we used to call it the fifth year of high school. So most kids would be 16, but I was the second youngest kid in the year. So, you know, term finishes early July, my birthday's in August. So I was 15. Uh, but interestingly, I think they've changed it now where I think you pretty much have to stay till you're 18. So 
I'm certainly glad I'm not there. Yeah. I think I, might, <laughs> I think two more years of that. I think I would have ended up in a different kind of institution. I think if if I'd had to stay to eighteen, I think the police would have been knocking. So yeah. And your first move out of high school was not exactly sort of traditional office job either. Not no, not really. The thing I was really interested in at school was geography and travel and maps, and I'm still still love. I still get excited looking at looking at maps and uh, well and just the, the bit before I left school what was interesting is I took chemistry as a as a subject when I was 14 I decided to and I've no idea why I took chemistry I just you know I had to tick some boxes on a piece of paper and I remember there was a moment sitting in the chemistry class and I thought I just do not un- I fundamentally do not understand what this is about or more importantly why it's relevant I kept questioning like how am I going to use this and I know that's you know quite a bold question to ask as a 14 year old and I went up to the teacher one day and I said I really don't understand chemistry and I don't like it. And this chemistry teacher was the most passionate chemistry teacher ever. And he looked at me crestfallen that one of his students had said, I just don't like this. And and I made him a proposal, which was, can I still come to class, but can I just sit at the back and do geography stuff and read about travel and volcanology and um, and all the things to do with the, the earth and nature? And he looked at me and he just smiled. He said, yeah, okay. So I used to go to chemistry, but sit at the back and look at atlases and read about travel and so I wasn't causing any trouble, like some of the other kids were causing trouble who didn't like it. So when I got to 15 and it was time to decide what to do, and most most of my friends would be going on to do higher education. So 17, 18, doing two years of further education in order to get the qualifications to go to university. And I just thought there's no way I can there's no way I can carry on doing two years of further education. And and we had a careers advisors and I had a meeting and the careers advisor said, Oh, have you heard of the the Merchant Navy? And I was like, I know what the Royal Navy is, but I don't know what the Merchant Navy is. And this guy said, Well, it's the transportation of goods and services on container ships, oil tankers. And uh, they're they're currently recruiting after a fairly long spell of not recruiting. So I read a bit about this and the prospect of travel. That's what lit me up. And I'd never been on an aeroplane. I'd never been abroad. I'd only ever looked at maps and atlases and read about it. And I said, well, that sounds great. And and I was 15 and I applied and I left school and they accepted me. And yeah, so that that's what I did. I joined the, joined the Merchant Navy. I got the job at 15. I turned 16 a month after leaving school. And two weeks after that, I was on an aeroplane to Peru. Mm. And I mean, that... It's a whole nother adventure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you spent two, three, th- two years, three years? Two years. Right. Yeah. Share generally what that experience was like. As an experience, it was pretty, what's the word I would use? Fascinating. I mean, it was fascinating personally in terms of what I learned about myself, but also in terms of what I experienced to, you know, there's, there's, there's seeing other countries and other people and other cultures and everything about that age 16 and 17 and seeing all and being exposed to all of that at such a young age was really interesting because I'd never, like I said, I'd never traveled with family. We'd never been abroad. And I think the other really interesting part for me was how I really surprised myself in terms of excelling in the academic side of the job, because I did an an officer cadetship and a big part of the job was doing a correspondence course in nautical science. So we were doing really complicated astro navigation and physics and interestingly chemistry to do with oil because we were carrying oil and you've got to think about the densities of things and how much do you put in the boat and is it going to sink depending on the density of the water and the temperatures and and I passed in amazingly I passed all the exams I came top of the class in a couple of exams 
And I was like, but I've never passed any exams. And all of a sudden, I'm in this practical application environment and it all makes sense. Like really complicated uh, equations to do with navigating by the stars and, and the movement of the sun and the earth in the solar system. And I just, it all just made sense because I was in it. I was absorbed in it. So that was really interesting to, for me to realize I could actually study. I could actually pass an exam. And then the other part of it was the people, which was probably the most fascinating part of spending months at a time in a confined space with around 18 other, other guys and being so young. And interestingly, the going back to the conformity bit is as a 16 year old going into a an environment where there's very clear expectations of behavior and conformity. Yeah, I didn't conform, which created a lot of problems. And you were, most of the people on, on the ship also were substantially older than you, from what I remember. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So as a 16-year-old, as a there may have been a few other guys who were in their early 20s, but pretty much everyone else was 40s, 50s, 60s. And some of them had spent 40 years on boats. So pretty ingrained behaviors and, and expectations. You know, a lot of, a lot around power and control and manipulation and bullying and yeah, there was, there was a lot, a lot going on. Yeah. I mean, which is, I mean, it's hard enough when you're somewhere where you can get away from it, but when you're literally confined on a vessel, often at sea for months at a time where there's nowhere to go. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, you just, you're in it and you, you, you learn a lot about yourself. I mean, when you're in a remote environment and there is no escape. And you're, you're confronted with yourself and who you are and what's important to you and your values and, and you know, the, the opportunities that, that are presented to you at many levels in that environment is you have choices to make and you're constantly battling that, that scale between not wanting to get into trouble and conform and sticking by your guns. And when you stick by your guns, you often, you have to deal with, challenge and difficulty and yeah that's yeah it was tough it was really tough I mean the, the I remember we joined the first ship in Peru and we sailed from Peru to Vancouver which is about a two-week journey and as we went past the Galapagos Islands you cross the equator and it is tradition in the in any seafaring setting whether it's sailing or in the navy that the first time you cross the equator on a boat you have to go through Neptune's ceremony and somebody gets just dressed up as Neptune with their big trident fork and they put some silly hat on. And in the Merchant Navy, Neptune ceremony basically involves being stripped and having your head shaved and having the uh, the kitchen slops poured over you. And uh, in the worst case scenario is to be tied up on the deck naked. And I was quite lucky because one of the officers on the boat had his wife on the boat, which was a infrequent occurrence. And it was her first time. So I actually escaped the nude, the nude bit. I still had to go through this pretty unpleasant ceremony, and it was fairly lighthearted, but certainly other people I know who'd been through it had had a fairly horrific experience. Yeah, it's like a hazing. Yeah, yeah. I've still got the certificate in a frame on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> Just to remind me. Survived I, Neptune. Survived uh, Neptune ceremony yeah. at age 16. So from there, I mean, that when this comes to an end you're still, you're still a kid effectively, yeah, but, but at the same time, you have just spent two years traveling around the world, visiting parts of the world that are profoundly different than like what you'd ever seen. And also learning how to survive in this kind of altered reality contained 
floating village with people who saw the world radically differently than you. Yeah. So where do you go from there? So yeah, I, I left a week before my 18th birthday and left the boat in Singapore, came back to the northwest of England. And it's like, well, what do I, what do I do? I've, like you say, I've been to 38 countries and seen and learned all this stuff. And like, what do I do with my life? And, and it was really difficult. Like, you know, the, you know, subsequent to that, you know, reading about reverse culture shock and re-entry and all that. I mean, I definitely went through quite a lot that summer when I got back. So I just hung out with my friends for a while. They were finishing their education and, and I was like, well, what do I do? And my, you know, my parents were like, well, it'd be good if you could at least get a job doing something. You know, don't just sit at home, get a job. So I went and worked in McDonald's and I, I went, I thought I'll go for six weeks for the summer. And then, you know, and I was really interested in the natural world. And I, was, I got into photography whilst I was in the Navy. And, and I thought I could, you know, maybe I should go and train and do a photography course because I love that interaction with nature and people and capturing it. And, and, you know, it just sparked my imagination and curiosity. And, and I thought about it and procrastinated and then <clears throat> went to work in McDonald's. I thought I'll do it for six weeks. And 20 months later, I was still there. Mm. So, I basically ended up in McDonald's for nearly the same amount of time that I'd been in the Navy. Man. <laughs> yeah. Talk about two profoundly different I mean, experiences. Yeah. And, but I mean, completely different at a, at an objective level, but subjectively what I, what I was re what really stood out for me, what I was really interested in was the people and behavior and, and being, I was junior in both jobs and I was just really interested about leadership and management and how people talk to people and how people use power or abuse power and how they manipulate and how they engage in teams and and mcdonald's was i didn't realize at the time but looking back on it now i learned so much about behavior and people and leadership just it was but i had no idea at the time but the lessons that were there were just so obvious nah I mean, it's so cool how you can reflect on stuff like that and realize that this thing where, you know, like maybe on any given day when you were there, you're like, why am I doing this? Like this, this is a waste of my time. I need to move on. You reflect back and you realize, no, that was actually pivotal in either triggering something or learning something and nothing is wasted. You know, like nothing, like this was, this was another drop in the bucket of, of data and experience that moved me to where I need to go. Yeah. I mean, it was, and, and interestingly, I was, um, I ended up being a a fairly non-conformist at McDonald's. I mean, some people might describe it as being a troublemaker. And, but I think, you know, there's some people who just let things go and lie down and ignore things. And, and, but I'm not like that. I'm like, if I genuinely believe that something needs to be said, I'll say it. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at signaturehardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit signaturehardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's signaturehardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life 
isn't always perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. So ever imagine socks could change your life? <laughs> Neither did I. Until I tried Bomba socks. They have completely reimagined socks, spending two years researching and developing something that really hasn't seen much innovation over probably a hundred years now. And along the way, they actually converted me from barefoot lover to sock lover, something I never actually thought would be possible. They've literally tested 133 tension levels to find the right one to stay up but not totally suffocate your calves. And they added these tiny little blister tab ankle cushiony things on their ankle socks to stop rubbing and chafing, which I totally dig when I run. They figured out how to have seamless toes so you never get that annoying bump pressing into your toes. They got this crazy Y-stitched heel that creates a kind of a, this natural cup around your heel and super yummy cotton. And they're also fueled by a social mission that really stuck with us. At Bombas, for every pair of socks purchased, they donate a pair to someone in need here in the U.S. To date, they've donated over 7 million socks to shelters in all 50 states. And at Bombas, they believe in 100% customer happiness. Simply put, if you don't love their socks, they'll refund you, no questions asked. And as a Good Life Project listener, you can save 20% by visiting bombas.com slash goodlife. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash goodlife. And enter the offer code goodlife in the checkout code space. Or just click the link in the show notes. Do you remember any moments sort of when you were there where you're like standing up? Yeah, absolutely. There was a, there was a, a, a case in McDonald's where I think I'm pretty sure at the time you weren't allowed to be a member of a, a union. And having come from the Navy where unions were, you know, huge and influenced a great deal the way that, you know, working practices and things went. And so I was, I'd have been exposed to a unionized industry. And I came to McDonald's where, you know, the concept of, you know, employees being part of a union was ridiculous and 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 I used to sort of champion the case for for the rest of the employees so I became the unofficial union rep which annoyed all the managers immensely because I would champion their cases for fairness and for equality and all the things that unions stand for and uh, and what one case in particular I, I noticed that I'm pretty sure I wasn't getting paid as much as I should have been so I kept this really detailed record of when, when I clocked in and clocked out and my hourly rate and sure enough I pinned it down to one particular manager who, when I was on his shifts, I was pretty sure I wasn't getting paid as much. So I asked the other crew to keep a record of their hours and then looked at their pay pay slips. And sure enough, we weren't getting paid. And so I did the right thing. And I went to the store manager and I said to her, I think something's going on with the pay system. And I show this evidence and classic, classic thing about responsibility and and leadership is she looked at it and said, I don't think there's anything going on. She just, you know, she didn't want to, she didn't want to take the, take the challenge of looking at it. So I thought, okay. So I rang up head office and presented the information and they said, okay. And the next thing they were keeping some remote record of us clocking in and out and in the system. And sure enough, this manager, um, because the managers were uh, rated on their ability to run shifts efficiently with the lowest staff cost, mm. when we'd all clocked out and finished our shift, he'd been going into the system and taking an hour and a half off everybody's shift. So we were all losing an hour and a half's pay on every shift we worked for him, and it made his figures look better. The senior operations manager came into the store one day and presented the evidence and uh, sacked him on the spot. Mm. So that's that. That was probably, you know, I'd, I'd certainly challenged authority and the misuse of power in the navy, and then I felt myself 
that was the the sort of next notable moment of this isn't right and I'm going to do something about it. Yeah. So there's like a thread of social justice. It's not just rebellion. It's, it's adventure and justice. I mean, it's, it's like you, you have a very clear sense of right and wrong and will advocate for right, advocate for right. Yeah. And I, I really remember it. I remember it then in in McDonald's, people saying to me, you're going to get into trouble. You're going to lose your job. I'm like, yeah, but it's not right. It's like, this needs to be said. Absolutely, this needs to be addressed. And yeah, were, were, when you went to the other employees and you were like, okay, so I'm running a covert up here and I have this evidence <laughs> and I need you guys to all start tracking your stuff too. I, this is fascinating to me. It's just like so funny that like we can get so much information out of this case study from when you're working at a fast food restaurant. But when you go, because it shows so much about human condition, like I'm guessing that a bunch of them were like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to track my hours. I don't want to be part of this. I'd rather just get stiffed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because they saw it as trouble, troublemaker. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, they absolutely did not want to go there. And I was just, you know, at a principle level, this is wrong, like right. absolutely wrong. And, and I, you know, that, that I, I can't remember where I read it, but somebody said, you can fight a battle on your own, but to win a war, you need allies. And, you know, that phrase has really stuck with me when I've worked with organizations since and, and, you know, when things haven't been right, it's, it's so important to get people on board and get people to see your position and to, you know, and that's a, and I think it's one of the reasons a lot of people don't go there and will just put up with the status quo is because it's it's too hard for a lot of people to try and get people on board and to get people to see their case. And they're also, I think a lot of people are afraid of, of the repercussions of that, and especially if, if I do it alone and then I don't have backup and then... You know, lose my job. I'm gonna get yeah. like bad recommendation, whatever it may be. And we, we would much rather endure some form of unfairness or injustice on you know a moderate level than actually risk respect because you know we're afraid that it may end up harming us in some way. And and I actually you know, I get that. I mean, especially if you know if you're working at a fast food restaurant and you've got a family to support and like you're working, this is one of three jobs for you. You know, you've got to weigh this. Okay. So do I accept 10% less on my paycheck, but know that I have the other 90% consistently, or do I demand fairness and risk losing like the entire paycheck? It's not, I mean, it's really, it's a, it's, it's a lot more complicated. You know, it's not just right or wrong or white or black or, you know, like yes or no. It's, Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how this, like a microcosm like that can really just deconstruct all the layers of humanity. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think it's, it's, it's really interesting because you think about why why don't people challenge? Is a lot of the time, I think what I've learned is people don't know where it's coming from within. And I guess and a lot of the work I've ended up doing is around values and helping people understand what their values are and how their experiences have shaped the values and whether it's nature or nurture, experience, education, and you know where their personal wisdoms come from. And I think that's one of the reasons I think often people will not act on a feeling is because they don't know why they've got the feeling or they don't know where it's coming from and i think that's certainly been a real exploration for me is to help myself understand that but also to help other people give them the confidence to understand where it's coming from like what's that feeling or emotion or that that drive to want to do something and if you don't know where it's coming from it's like, i think it's much harder to then do something so like how would you walk somebody through trying to understand where, trying to understand that, trying to identify what actually is going on in my head and where is this coming from? You know, I think one of the first questions to ask somebody to help them understand is, is to get them to, to ask them the question, 
what is it about society or other people that really annoys you? And when you ask somebody that, if you think about what are the things that other people do that annoy you, that's basically self-informing about what matters to you and what's important, you know, and that's because that's ultimately your value. So, you know, if you're standing in a line and someone's, well, we call it queue jumping in the UK. I don't think you call it queue. You call it line jumping cunning. maybe? Yeah, cunning. <laughs> cunning the line. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you've been very disciplined and, and you're standing in a line and someone walked to the front, it's what do you do? And and if that really annoys you, then you've probably got a value around fairness. You know, so it's a really interesting question to think about. It's like, what what are the things that other people do that, that annoy you and wind you up? Because that will really be self-informing. Yeah, so interesting. So you're you're priming someone to identify their values by sort of like asking them to think about situations where those values are being violated. Yeah, being compromised. And, and then reversing what the actual value is out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's, somebody, somebody, that's cool. yeah, somebody jumping the line. It's probably around fairness. And then you think about, so why, why is fairness important to me? What is it? You know, the, the, the deeper then conversation is, so if fairness is something that's important to me, where's that come from? Is it because of my friendships, my parents, my experiences, what I've seen? Was it something in a movie? Like it's come from somewhere. And you know, the, the interconnectedness between beliefs, experience and values is, a, I think that, that, that is an exploration is where I spend a lot, a lot of my work really helping people go through that in order for them to better understand themselves and, and have more confidence in their own decision-making and career choice and relationships. I mean, it just informs everything we do. The way, you know, sorry. How do you distinguish beliefs and values? I would say that the way I think about it is I think that our experiences shape what we believe to be right and wrong. So I think beliefs for me and the conversations I've had with people is often as a result of experience. Whereas I think values, I think there's a combination of beliefs from experiences, but also something within there from nature. I think somehow with values are in inherent, like there's, there's somewhere within. So I think, I think there's a combination of the two things. In yeah. Term, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. There's something I've thought about a whole bunch also. And uh, cause I think those two words are used interchangeably a lot, beliefs and values. And, and like you, I, it's nuanced, but I don't think they're the same. I think to me, beliefs are what is true and not true in your lens, you know, whether it's verifiable through some proof or experience or something like that, or whether it's based purely on faith or hope or just belief or intuition. It's, it's, it is what, what do I believe to be true and not true? Mm. Whereas values is more, this is who I am. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and who you are is a result of both experience and nature. You know, and it's so. I think, yeah, to, for me, they they are often used interchangeably, but they they're nuanced and definitely different. Yeah, and both important, I think, in the way we live our lives and make yeah. decisions. So, you no longer work at McDonald's. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, it's it's this thing about working in McDonald's, and 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 people are like you worked in McDonald's, and I say, yeah, and it was brilliant. Like I learned so much, but I didn't know what I was learning at the time. You know, that's, I have no regrets about Story working. Story of life. <laughs> I have no regrets about working at McDonald's, but I know I was definitely ready to leave after about 20 months of being there. Yeah. What was the next move? So the next move was probably the most fascinating, reflective hour of my life. When I think back is, I remember I used to cycle to work. It was about six miles to get to the store, to go to McDonald's. And I was cycling in and, and there was a, a, a junction opposite the store and I pulled up on my bicycle 
and I was on a breakfast shift, so it's like 5.30 a.m. I think it was in the autumn. It would have been in like September, October, I think. And, and I'm at the traffic lights, and I'm overwhelmed with this sense of turn around and go somewhere else. Like, don't go to work. Like, you, there was just this amazing moment of realisation that, okay, you have to do something different today. And I was like, wow, this is quite an interesting experience. I'm like, you know, some slight flashbacks to being in the Navy and knowing that I had to leave that. And I ended up going into the store and it was a pretty quiet shift and breakfast shift and there's not much going on. And, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, I need to, what am I going to do with my life? You know, there's these, this, the questions started. What am I going to do with my life? What's it, what's, you know, now what? We, we, we get these free newspapers in the UK, I don't know if you get them in the US, where they're just full of adverts and full of kind of odd articles and there's lots of adverts for cars and slippers and coats and all these other things. And most people don't, you know, they use it to, uh, you know, to, to line the cat litter tray or something like that. You know, they, they, they're, they're often not read. And then when I went on my break, I had an hour. And it's really interesting this in terms of the whole concept of sliding doors and opportunities is normally you went on your break and, you know, you put the TV on or the radio or you chat to somebody. And on this particular day, the TV was broken, the radio was broken, and there was nobody else on their break. So I'm sat in a room having a some sort of burger, I suspect, and there's a free newspaper on the table. And I, I thought, I've got an hour. And I was, curiosity has always been something I've, you know, there's been part of who I am. And I set myself the challenge of reading every word in the free newspaper. And I get about two thirds of the way through it and there was like a postage stamp sized advert. And all it said was, would you like to go to the Arctic for four months? Question mark. And it had a phone number. And I thought, Arctic, I know where that is. That's north. Hmm, that's interesting. So I finished my shift and I called the number and the telephone number was a youth development charity in London, which is now called British Exploring. And I called them up and they said, yeah, we run youth development expeditions and we take people to remote adventurous environments to conduct scientific field work and learn about yourself. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I went to have a, an interview with a guy. He said, you know, what have you done? Where have you been? And everything. And I was absolutely at the upper age limit of who they accepted in terms of youth development. So I would have been 20, I think. I had these interviews and, and they were in the December of that year. And the expedition was going the following April. And everyone else had had about a year and a half to prepare for the expedition um, because you had to fundraise. And at the time, this was 1993, and it was best part of £3,000, which was, you know, it's like... Real money. Real money <laughs> yeah. then. And, but you had to fundraise. And the whole part of the expedition was to raise the money to go on a adventurous personal development experience and had a little bit of, uh, little bit of help from my parents. And, and I did all sorts of crazy fundraising things like asking the local supermarket if I could sit in the freezer for half an hour. You know, all those kind of things you do when you get creative. How can you get money out of people by doing something a bit odd? Which pretty much sums up the world of adventurous travel now, perhaps. Sure enough, so yeah, the f April, uh, April the 10th, 1993, I got on an aeroplane with 27 other young people and I went to the Norwegian Arctic island of Svalbard for 16 weeks and lived in tents and igloos and travelled on ice caps and learned to survive in minus 30 temperatures whilst doing scientific fieldwork and learning about life, self, leadership, yeah, the most amazing experience, incredible experience. Mm.
Was it anything like what you thought it would be going into it when you actually got there? <laughs> I had, I really had no idea what to like what to expect. I mean, I'd been up to Scotland to do some training with the expedition team and we'd been in the snow and the cold and, and I loved it. You know, I absolutely, I loved it, but I, I, I really, I mean, how, uh, you know, as a young person, I'm not sure it's possible to prepare yourself mentally for being in the Arctic wilderness for 16 weeks. The first, the first day we were in a camp and it's 24 hour daylight. It's mine. I think it was like minus 27 Celsius. It was pretty cold. And I remember standing there thinking, what on earth have I chosen to do? And I'm just standing there looking out at the Arctic wilderness, the sea ice, and it's like two o'clock in the morning, the sun's low in the sky, it's daylight, and, you know, not a breath of wind. Just, you know, when you're breathing in and the, the moisture in your nose is freezing and you squeeze your nose and it crunches and and just just this the pristine silence of being there. And then I looked over and saw a polar bear walking along the sea ice, probably about a mile away. And just like, you know, eyes as big as they could possibly be, just thinking this is unbelievable. This is day one. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure it's possible to prepare yourself mentally at that age to go and do something like that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like everything was leading up to sort of uh, what would become eventually your certainly bigger body of work. But it sounds like this experience was the thing that really locked in this idea of using wilderness as a tool for development. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be not impossible to spend that amount of time in the wilderness and not learn about yourself and other people and reflect on life and purpose and what matters. Um, so that that really was the first, yeah, the, the 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 grounding experience, I guess, the formative experience of what really shaped my interest and fascination for using time outside to help people. Yeah. So how do you build on that then? And start to plot a course for you know the work you'll do in the world as somebody who effectively organizes experiences like that, but in very different ways in very different places and takes people into these extreme environments and through experiences while they're there that leave them profoundly changed. I mean, what's how does that all get set in motion from there? Well, following that expedition, I came back from that and it was a. It was like revisiting the same experience of leaving the navy, which was I've had this incredible experience. Now what? Like, what do I do with my life now? And not going back to McDonald's. I'm not going. <laughs> I, I made that. Yeah, I'm not going back to McDonald's uh, as much as you know. In hindsight, I did learn a lot from it. So I go back to the north of England and overwhelmed, overwhelmed by green and trees and noise and pollution and everything else that you get in normal life that you don't get in an Arctic wilderness. And I thought, what am I going to do? And then I, I heard about a an organization where a lot of young people would go and work there as adventure instructors and you would take basically children through adventure holidays, doing archery and, and uh, you know, canoeing and kayaking and all that stuff. And I thought, okay, well, that, that could be a pretty cool job. Uh, you know, I've had this experience. And so I, I wrote to the chief leader of my expedition to ask her for a reference and we'd got on pretty well on the expedition and she was up in Scotland working for uh, the charity Outward Bound. And I wrote to her to ask her for a reference. I said, I'm really interested in this whole idea of outdoor learning and development and character development and people. And, and she wrote back to me and said, I'm sorry, I can't give you a reference, but I'd like to give you a job. So that was pretty, pretty lucky because 
most people had to go through some level of training or uh, apprenticeship with these other organizations in order to get to work for Outward Bound. And, and they were creating a new role, which was a, a trainee instructor. So she basically said, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to offer you a job in this new role that we're creating. And so, yeah, I think it must've been three weeks later, I, I got on a train and one way ticket to the Highlands of Scotland. I spent the next three years working for Outward Bound in Scotland. And, uh, and at the time Outward Bound were, were really, you know, we're really at the, the forefront of working both with young people in the outdoors in terms of personal character development, but also working with corporates. And the center I was at did both. So they had a, a corporate development arm and a personal development arm. And so I had this instant exposure to using the outdoors to help people in organizations develop their own character and leadership and, and team development, whilst also working with young people, teaching them climbing and sailing. And, and I had this yeah, fantastic three years working there, which really was the, I would say was the real grounding of my understanding in experiential learning. Good Life Project is supported by BetterHelp. So many of us are going through a lot right now and could really use someone to talk to. And friends and family, they can be great. But talking with someone who is truly qualified to help you feel better can be a real game changer. And BetterHelp can do just that. They're the world's largest online counseling service. You can get started no matter where you are in the world quickly. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Then you schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort, privacy, and safety of your own space. And they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel you'd like to try someone else. BetterHelp also gives you access to an incredible range of expertise, which might not be available where you are. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid may be available. So visit betterhelp.com slash goodlife. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash goodlife and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And as a special offer for Good Life Project listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash goodlife. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to sort of hear that your path to your path to experiential learning was experiential learning, you know, where, you know, experiential learning has kind of become a, a bit of a, a catchphrase or a buzzword these days, you know, as this alternative. And, and I think, I think it's awesome. You know, it's, it's fantastic that we are focusing a lot on that. I've known people that have started foundations around this as alternatives for kids who are just not doing well in traditional settings. But very often it's sort of like, well, how do you learn to teach experiential learning, how do you develop that program? Like, well, let me find it, a degree program that will teach me how to do that. So it's kind of fascinating to me that your path there was simply through just this, like this series of experiences that took you deeper and deeper and deeper. It was all through doing and through it resonating on a very personal level. And then bundled with your fierce curiosity to keep witnessing and deconstructing how it was actually affecting the people. Yeah. within the experience, including you, just on a personal level. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, re I remember, you know, although I was in my early 20s, I, I remember taking people through these experiences, but also being in the experience myself. And it's certainly one of the things I still carry now is when I set up projects and I work with people, I say to my my co-facilitators and, you know, practitioners is that this isn't, this isn't, this isn't something you're doing to other people. This is an experience that, 
we put together that you're in. Like this isn't this isn't teaching. You can't possibly run this work authentically and not be in it because it just doesn't work like that. And so I think I certainly went through that when I was at Outward Bound is that every day you're working with people, you know, you've, you're asking people questions. You've got to ask yourself the same questions. And it still carries true now, I think. Mm. I mean, what, it's also such a great lens because I think we often, we get to a point where we kind of feel like, okay, so we've checked that box and now we'll turn around and teach people how to do, you know, like what we've done, but we're at another point now. So we don't have to continue to, yeah, <laughs> with these reflections, yeah, yeah. which is unfortunate because I think we lose when we do that. Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, we lose perspective. We lose the insight and, and, and our relatedness is people just don't respond well to it because it's perceived as, you know, superiority or it's perceived as arrogance or it's perceived as yeah, lack of care. Yeah. Lack of care or compassion because you're not, you know, you're not asking, you're not thinking, you're not asking yourself the questions. Yeah. And, and also I think, how can you, you know, one of the first conversations we ever did way back when we were filming this, David Marquette, who found himself commanding nuclear sub, but it wasn't the sub that he had studied and like prepared his entire life to command. And he was in it one day and he's like barking these orders to like, you know, like all ahead for whatever it was. And everyone's kind of like getting resisting, 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 but they're following his orders until finally he realized that if they had gone a little bit further, he would have grounded the sub and nobody would tell him because he was the authority yeah. and their job was just to follow orders. And he was like, from that moment on, he completely changed the culture on the ship and said, okay, this is, this, this is no longer about following orders. It's all about intention. Like you tell me now, you know, like, sir, I intend to dot, dot, dot because I need to learn from you. I need, like, we need to create a culture where I, as a leader, am completely open to learning from and responding to you and your intention and your intelligence. Yeah. And I guess, it, you know, it's one of the problems with the, with the concept of expertise is when we perceive someone to be an expert or to be really experienced, we're probably a lot, le a lot less likely to either question them or to point out something we've seen, which isn't, isn't right or which, you know, could go wrong. And then I guess, you know, in that case, a nuclear sub that might ground could go catastrophically wrong. But if there isn't the culture or the expectation or the permission to be able to question or challenge, then, you know, that's when a lot of things go wrong in society and organizations. Yeah. And you as a leader, if you don't allow that, I mean, you stop growing. Like you're, you've now flatlined. <laughs> and, you know, at which point, at, at some point, everybody's going to pass you by if, you, you know, if you're motivated by being able to sort of like continue to grow, but also just on a personal level. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> I guess what's really interesting is the work I've, you know, I've been doing in the last few years with executives and senior leaders is, is taking, through, taking them through experiences, which is just to slow down and ask themselves some of those questions. So tell me about some of the, like this, what, what types of things are you doing now? So, I mean, to sort of rapidly fill in the gap, you took that, like this experience and essentially start to build your own enterprise doing this on your own. And over the years, continuing to work with both kids and executives and teams at the highest levels and kids going through all sorts of different stuff. Yeah. So I think, so, you know, I guess from that, from the, from those experiences, give me the grounding and then is constantly being developing and nurturing this idea of how to help people ask themselves questions and give them experiences, which give them the environment to be able to have the time to reflect on those questions that are going to help them in their lives in terms of their, you know, their own sense of well-being, their own purpose and direction, but also in terms of their relationships with families and at work 
And then at a bigger level is by having those experiences is how can that help you better influence society at a, at a bigger level? So like what would be an example of an environment or an experience and how that would affect, like how, how this would become a really powerful experience? So spending time in the outdoors on, on a journey, I think is one of the things that I've seen work really well. So I've been running a program for, well, a series of programs, I guess, for the last seven or eight years. And one of them has been a, a journey in canoes in down slow moving rivers where you have the time to have really good quality conversation and reflection and asking people to think about their values and what informs them and what experiences have informed them and and really getting people to think about well what what do you want to do and what matters what what's important to you so and that particular program is 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 called leadership for good which is around how do we help people at all levels of society develop the courage and confidence to actually make a difference so i've been running that program for a, a number of years and that that's i think probably the main the main thing that I've been focusing on in terms of scaling is, is because I think it's such a, a clear need in society is to have people who have the ability and the courage and the confidence to say, you know what, I don't think this is the right way to do things. I think we need to do something different here. And, and if you look at recent history, there is a very long list of, you know, situations and organizations where there has been a moment where an individual or a group of people could have said, look, I think we need to do something different here. You know, the classic thing is the, the Volkswagen's emission scandal. You know, how could an organization create an, an, a situation where that, that, that's occurring? You know, there must have been meetings and conversations where there was opportunities for people to say, I actually don't think this is a great idea long term. I think we need to do something different here because this isn't going to go so well. You know, and then you, you, you know, you bring it back to the whole Weinstein scandal and and all of that cultural stuff around power and control and you know and it's taken a number of people to to start to speak out and of course once people start to speak out you find that actually you weren't alone and lots of people have either experienced the same thing or think think the same thing so the aim of that program the aim of the leadership for good program is to take people on a on a journey that gives them that real solid foundation that they really know what matters to them and what's important and to give them the confidence and courage to to both follow a follow a life of passion and purpose but also be able to 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 have that ability to look at the world around them and to to be able to speak up when people need to speak up can you recall a moment where you were with somebody or a group of people deep into some natural environment intersecting with these questions, these prompts, where the blend of those two things and the conversation and the community just sparked some sort of major shift or awakening in somebody or the entire group? Yeah, I think that the, there was there was one, one of the Leadership for Good programs I was running where a girl was in that fairly not uncommon situation of pursuing a career in accordance with the, the wishes of her parents. They wanted her to be a lawyer. They were both lawyers. And this is, you know, this is what you're going to do. And she just, she had a moment sitting in a canoe. There was quite a lot of emotion where she had this sudden realization that the the journey she was on just did not conform with who she was and what mattered to her. And she'd only got there because of having the time and the space and the support to have the conversations, to develop the awareness, to think, well, actually, what do I really want to do? 
And, you know, the, the rest of the, the trip for her was around how am I going to have this conversation with my parents? You know, what am I going to base this on? I'm going to have this courageous conversation with my parents. And, you know, you think about all the things that that involves as an only child. And they've paid for her to go through law school. And 100%, she knows that she does not want to be a lawyer. Those kind of experiences and conversations, especially for people who are in their early 20s, you know, where, where, do, where do you get that level of support and that level of insight to be able to help you to do that? And, you know, so that, and that, that is, you know, one of a number of situations or conversations that I remember where someone just had a moment of realization that I need to have a courageous conversation. And the rest of the program, like I say, the rest of the program for her was about helping her have that. And after the program, supporting her through that. And she did, she did go and have the courageous conversation and it was pretty tough. She's now not far off completing her final exams to be an airline pilot. Her passion, her passion was, was an interest was flying. So that's what she's pursuing. Yeah, that's so cool. What is it about natural environments is so transformational? Because I've experienced this my entire life. I, I grew up down the block from the water. Yeah. And when I'm, when I'm stressed out, when I, when I need a reset, when I need to think, when I need clarity, when I just need to breathe, I always will either go to the water or walk into the woods. Nobody told me to do that. And it doesn't always make everything okay, but it gives me what I need in that moment in time. And if I keep doing it and returning to it, eventually I end up in a better place. And I know you, you've used natural environments both, both to create extreme circumstances that really yeah. challenge people. And then on the other hand, you've used it here where it's like the nature of the environment commands that you must slow down. Yeah. And just be be still, which is, I would imagine, just as hard, if not harder, for people than learning how to deal with extreme environments in nature. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's interesting. Like the, the the phrase "extreme environment," I think it's interesting is because for people who are not used to taking some time out to slow down in nature, going to sit in Central Park for half an hour on your own under a tree could feel quite extreme. You know, like you don't have to go on an Arctic expedition. You know, and a, a couple of years ago, I ran a, an Arctic reflective journey. I'm doing one in a couple of months' time for some execs. And that's, a, you know, that's an extreme version of going somewhere to have a real deep reflective, go through a, a deep reflective process. But at the same token, like you say, you can, you can walk into Central Park from where we're sitting now and take half an hour without your telephone and and just be you know just be be a human being as opposed to a human doing it as you know as as it's often said and and i think this there's you know i think there there is all sorts of research around what happens to your brain you know your brain on nature has been surrounded by the colors the shapes the sounds the sights the smells and just being still outside well i guess the thing i think the thing about it is it can be confronting because all you have is yourself and i often describe it as spending time in nature and slowing down is like going outside with a big mirror. And not all of us actually want to look in the mirror because, you know, often it's much easier just to get on and do stuff and be busy. But I think having a little bit of time and having that balance of having some sort of practice where you do go outside and have some reflective space, I think that's, you know, from my experience, is what people find incredibly useful and, you know, have profound insight about either our values, our relationships, our work, what we want to do, our purpose. So I think on a spectrum of extreme, extreme environments, it, 
it, it's a very big spectrum and it you know i think it depends on the on the individual you know i know in japan for years they've prescribed forest yeah. bathing shinrin-yoku shinrin-yoku yeah. <laughs> yeah friend of mine i stayed last weekend in edinburgh with a doctor friend and she said she's just been given permission to issue green prescriptions in the uk which basically means go outside go for a walk in the woods so i mean it's you know it's starting to to pick up from a, a health perspective that it, you know it's undoubted you know undoubtedly true i think that just spending time outside has a positive effect on our well-being but i think the work i do with that is also to give it some structure and some questions and support and set up learning experiences where there is a a gentle level of facilitation coupled with the experience of being there that takes people through a reflective journey to give them more perspective and insight and awareness and to think about their relationships and their own, you know, their own lives. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's that blend, which really is sort of like the, the powerful and lucky. And at the same time, like, I wonder also what role awe plays in the entire experience, because I know there's actually awe or wonder, you know, there's actually, I'm, I'm fascinated by actually awe. There, mm-hmm. there's a growing body of research on how it actually affects us and how it, you know, literally kind of changes your brain on everything from it rewires you to sort of all of a sudden reconnect with like a sense of expansiveness. And at the same time on the, even like a a micro level can have the experience of reducing inflammation in your body and changing your immunity, which is really powerful. And I wonder when you bring people into nature, to me, that's the easiest place where I reconnect with with both wonder and awe, which I think are a little bit different. I'm curious whether it is, you know, when you're sitting in the Arctic Circle somewhere and like what you described the first night, standing there, you know, with with utter silence, you know, just a seascape of whiteness. And then out of the corner of your eye, you know, like with nothing around and bitter cold, seeing a polar bear just kind of wandering by. I mean, Mm. that is awe. Yeah. You know, and how can that, I'm so, so curious what role that effect plays in the entire experience of sort of like having this opening expansive effect just because of the natural environment. And then you plant these seeds, these prompts, like how do you think about them and experience them differently when you're in that state? Yeah, it's, um, (laughs) I know it's a big question. (laughs) It's a big, it's a really big question, isn't it? And I think it's, I, I think, I think the, the, the art of running these experience is to, is to just let them go and for people to experience them as they experience them. And I think, you know, how we experience awe could be, could be from a, from what you're seeing externally in terms of that environment, but also what we think about ourselves. And certainly I know I've had personal experiences where I've just had some time outside and just had a moment and just come up with an idea and been overwhelmed with a feeling through my body of that just feels fantastic. So I think it can the awe, I think, can be an internal sense as well as what you're actually seeing. Where we, you know, and that's something I think other people have said to me is where they, you know, you call it light bulb moments or, you know, deep clarity, whatever. But I think that, I think it can work both ways. Both, you know, the environment can give you an internal feeling of, wow, that is just, that feels fantastic. That thought or that idea, or if you're reflecting on a relationship or, you know, it's just, so I think there's, Certainly the experiences of being outside, it can be, yeah, certainly can be a visual, certainly can be a visual thing, like you said, like the Arctic. But I think how it, I think the question was, how does it translate? I think for me, it's about perspective. 
is there's something about feeling insignificant and vulnerable is a real key part of spending time outside. And that's the bit I think we lose when we're busy in work, in life, in organisations, is I think as we progress through our careers and life, I think we often have a sense of being more important as as you go through your life. And, you know, this goes back to the conversation we had about expertise and not listening. And it's about losing our ability to be vulnerable. And spending time outside feels vulnerable, whether that's sitting in Central Park on your own for half an hour or being in the Arctic, looking out of the Arctic wilderness, seeing a polar bear. It's pretty hard to be be in a place like that and not feel a little bit vulnerable. And I think that's the, the vulnerability part of spending time outside, I think, is the key ingredient for helping people to develop perspective and insight and an ability to be better at self-managing and making decisions. I think that for me is the key part of the whole thing. And, you know, the, the, I worked with a, a senior exec team just before Christmas in London and they wanted to run the event in a, in a hotel in the middle of London. And I said, well, let's just go on the side of Richmond park and Richmond park is a beautiful park on the outside of London and there's wild deer and, there's trees and so we ran the, the event on the side of the park in a hotel and we spent half a day just going for a walk in the park and we did walking dialogue having paired conversations and then we just had a, like 20 minutes of sitting still and when we had the conversation about it all they, all they wanted to talk about was what it felt like to be vulnerable and then they had this huge disclosure about their insecurities as senior leaders in an organization and the acceleration of that group of people being connected, developing trust and openness was was as a result of going for a walk in the woods and just having a feeling of being vulnerable. Yeah, that never would have happened if you were just sitting in a conference room. No, it just would never. Yeah. You know, I remember one, one of the one of the women, she um she talked about insecurity and that, that that thing I've heard a lot was, you know, the the question is as a senior person in an organization, people often say, When are they going to find me out? You know, and and she shared this whole thing around her insecurity and um, you know, if you were gonna if you're going to attach a hashtag to this, it would be you as well, exclamation mark. Because everyone else said, I feel like that as well. I'm, I feel really insecure and I can't believe that I'm a senior leader in this organization. And they had this fantastic conversation all around vulnerability. I know, and I'm still working with them. I'm going to do another event with them near where I live in the Lake District in May, where we're going to take them outside for a little bit more time. But that catalyst of being outside and feeling vulnerable, I think, is the bit that really helps people to develop relationships perspective honesty trust yeah no i love that it's kind of fun because you can it, it you know you can really trace this thread back to when you were five yeah <laughs> back to like the youngest years of you having this really strong sense of experiential like a deep quest for learning actually but absolutely not in a constrained normative way like it's got to be experiential it's got to be outdoors and and coupled with a, you know, a deep fascination with human beings and a sense of justice. It's kind of a fascinating through line that you know, carries you all the way here. One of the things that you've sort of evolved to with all this work and groups of all different ages is sort of the idea of something bigger on the level of a movement. Yeah. So about a year ago, I rebranded my business and I created what essentially is a movement called Explore What Matters, which is a global community of people who I've worked with and met who are really interested in making a positive difference to people and society. And the aim of this movement is to bring really passionate educators together to work with both organizations and on open programs 
to to ask those difficult questions about what matters and how do we influence organizational policy how do we influence even society or even you know even maybe a, a country's foreign policy perhaps if we're going to get really ambitious and i have done a little bit of work with a country in the middle east working with some of their young people to look at how they integrate across different religions and across communities so so my my real my real dream for the future is to develop this idea of explore what matters to to make a difference to make a real tangible difference to organizations and society which has that knock on effect on on people and i think as i said in a different part of the conversation the you know the world we live in right now we're surrounded by just so much stuff and uncertainty and uh, you know and it just feels like this bubbling bubbling thing going on and i think that the thing that i think can really help is to help people connect at a values level and bring people together to actually make a difference and whether it's about plastics in the oceans whether it's about abuses of power and equality whether it's about gender equality whether it's about helping organizations create structures where it's okay for people to speak up that they have a good intention then i think this idea of explore matters is this community of people who can come together to work on those sorts of projects um you know i think one of the phrases i think with it's a one of the worst labels that's used for people who have courage is whistleblower you know this whole idea of a whistleblower you know one way of looking at this is a, a whistleblower is a a loud noise which should be silenced as quickly as possible and certainly that's something that happens in organizations is so often somebody speaks up and the first thing that happens is that there's an attempt to silence them because the the leadership of that organization sees it as a challenge and sees it as something that's going to undermine who they are and you know that comes back to the vulnerability bit is that surely if the whistleblower has good intentions if the senior leadership of an organization is willing to do something that's right if they have a you know a level of comfort with vulnerability then they're going to be more you know happy to explore what that person's saying so i think we should redef re redefine the word whistleblower and anyone who speaks up we should just call them a truth seeker rather than a whistleblower because i think whistleblower has such a negative connotation now that I'm, I'm just thinking i was trying to remember the origin of the word whistleblower because i think the original intention is if if there's physical danger in an environment, like you blow the whistle, so everyone it's like the all clear, so everyone can run for safety. I that could be completely made up, but there's something in my Sounds mind good. that says <laughs> that says that's where it came from, and it has been sort of like the uh, that it's it is it's taken on a different meaning over time. And yeah, we are in a moment right where I feel like a lot of this is happening now, and to create any sort of structure or ideas or experiences that some way accelerate that or give intelligent process around it. And I think it can only help. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it's what organizations and, and societies need. I think it's, yeah. And I guess, you know, who knows where it goes? We've, we've, we've run some pretty interesting projects so far, but I think the bigger dream is to, is to essentially create an international movement around helping people to explore what matters to have a, a positive effect on organizations and society. So as we sit here, maybe this is good life project. So after this phrase up to you to live a good life, what comes up? I think it's to take the time to live a good life is to take the time to question what matters to you and to have the courage to follow the, the convictions of the answer of that question. I think that that's the thing that stands out for me is, you know, if you get to, 
70 or 80 and you look back on your life and think, what have I done? I think thinking about what's been a good life is to have lived a life as closely aligned as possible to the things that do actually matter to you. Mm. Love it. So if you're still listening, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just completely love that you enjoyed this episode so much that you've listened until now. You're an awesome human being. And while we're wrapping things up, might as well um, share a quick shout out to our super cool brand partners. If you love the show, and I'm guessing you do because you're still here, please support them. They help make the podcast possible. Check out the links in today's show notes. And don't forget also your spot at this year's Camp GLP. As we recently announced, this will be our final year. We're expecting about 400 amazing humans from all around the world. It's going to be more epic than ever. And if you've been waiting, be sure to register soon. You can find that link at goodlifeproject.com slash camp today, or just click the link in the show notes. See you next week.